Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we're continuing our series called How Are We Doing Now? where we talk with lawyers who used to work for a big law firm called Howry. That is before the firm imploded and went bankrupt in 2011. In this episode, we're talking with a man who is the law firm equivalent of those farmers you hear about who've been struck by lightning four times. Now they can pick up a radio station in Tokyo on their fillings. You think, how is it even possible to get struck by lightning four times? Well, today we're going to be talking with Aaron Gruber, a lawyer who didn't just get caught up in the demise of Howry, Right before he came to Howry, he was at Thielen Reed, another big firm that collapsed. Hope you enjoy hearing from Aaron. Welcome to Lawyerly. My guest today is Aaron Gruber, who is a partner with Rawls, Gruber, and Nice in San Mateo. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to see you. Am I saying that right, Rawls, Gruber, and Nice? Correct. Uh, so are you the Gruber in Rawls, Gruber, and Nice? I, I am the name on the door Gruber in Rawls, Gruber, and Nice. There's no uh, parent nepotism or anything like that going on. <laughs> what do you do there? Uh, I'm the, a, a partner. Um, I guess you could say founding partner, although I cheated a little and that my partner, John Rawls, had started the firm in a much smaller capacity a couple years before I showed up. Um, he convinced me to, to join him and leave the big firm life and which I did, uh, over six years ago. So, and it's all been good. So what would you say are sort of the main differences between working at a small firm and having worked at a big firm before? Uh, other than there being no word processing department, um, uh, <laughs> and you know, some of the other amenities we come to expect being at a big firm, uh, not a whole lot of differences. The practice is very similar. Um, we staff things the same way. It's just, you know, I don't have a corporate department I can go ask questions of or a real estate department or other aspects that you might have at a big firm. Um, you know, you, there's less people in the office. Uh, things are a little quieter. Um, but, you know, you know, and I don't get to go up to San Francisco every day to go to work. So, the commute's better, but all in all, the, the practice is very similar. Same type of cases for the most part, maybe not the mega cases anymore, but uh, we're you know, pushing forward in, in, in litigating disputes for clients. So you're, you operate mainly in the realm of construction litigation? Yeah, and, and I, I could even explain that a little bit. We, we yeah, don't please. do insurance work. We don't do construction defect work. We're at the end of the day, really, it's kind of business commercial litigations. It's large disputes between contract, mostly contracting parties over large construction projects. Uh, a lot of them are public works. Some of them are private developments. But usually the projects are in the eight or nine figures and the disputes are in the seven and eight figures. So what, what kind of disputes are you dealing with if you're not dealing with construction defect? So a, a typical dispute is if he, the contractor um, was unable to complete in time and the owner is not particularly happy about that 
and uh, would like either some sort of liquidation or some sort of damages back. And the contractor's not particularly happy because the owner couldn't get their act together. I mean, you know, those are the typical views that are expressed by clients when we get the phone call. And it's helping them to work out the differences to take a deep dive into what are frequently, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents, millions of documents, terabytes of data on multiple year projects and really kind of untangle the, the facts to try and get to the bottom of how we try and resolve a dispute so the parties can move forward. But it, at the end of the day, 80% of the time, it has to do with delays and cost overruns on large construction projects. So unlike a lot of lawyers, you, de- you develop this specialty sort of the hard way, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I cut my teeth um, as a structural engineer for several years before I decided to sell my soul and go to law school. <laughs> so it, it was quite a change in, in uh, careers, but uh, I, I'm, I'm happy I did it. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. What, what does working as a structural engineer entail? So my undergraduate degree uh, was in structural engineering. I graduated and took a job as, uh, you could say, kind of an apprentice engineer, which is the typical path. You work under a licensed engineer, and you're working with an architect and essentially um, making a building stand up, for, for lack of a better term. The architect's going to come to you with a whole host of different design thoughts and elements and ideas, and you need to tell them what's realistic and what's not realistic uh, and, you know, and give them an idea of what's going to fit within the client's budget. And then we sit down and we design it and we make determinations on material properties and the size of the structure and the way the members work, both for issues related to the weight of the building. Uh, in California, there's seismic issues uh, back east and to a lesser extent in California, there's wind issues. And it's pulling all that information together and, and helping the architect to put together a set of plans that ultimately go to a contractor to build and an owner to pay for. So how often does that sort of specific expertise in, in your background as an engineer come into play as a construction litigator? Uh, not on a daily basis, but it definitely helps. I mean, we have some matters that come into the office where having uh, an intricate understanding of structural engineering issues is very important, but it's not as frequent as I would hope. Um, More often, though, having a general understanding of kind of the construction process having worked as a design professional, having built projects and design projects, it's, it's more the kind of the vernacular, the, the language, the uh, acronyms that are used that uh, help the process of just understanding what's going on with the client and, and what their position is and how we can hopefully try and help them solve a problem. So it's definitely can, helpful. You can speak sort of the, the language of the experts and, um, you know, the lay of the land. Well, th- that's the hope. Um, <laughs> things things do change, and I've not kept. Although my engineering license is active, I've, I've not I've not designed anything in twenty five years. So, um, but that's, but you're that's right. Your, that's your fallback in case this whole lawyering thing doesn't work out. Well, for the security of people <laughs> living in California and going in and out of buildings, let's hope not. So, yeah, um, yeah. it's been quite a while, but but it does help. It, the, the background definitely helps. 
And I mean, I don't know, on some levels, it's me suffering from a lack of imagination. I, I really like the construction industry. So even though I went to law school, I kind of stuck with it. Well, so for more, most of the guests that I will have on as part of this How Are We Doing Now series, I met them first at Howry, and I know them primarily from having practiced with them. But with Aaron, it's a little different. I met him when we were both students at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. And at the time, both of us were architectural engineering majors. But that's not actually how we met each other either. Uh, Aaron and I were fraternity brothers at Cal Poly in Sigma Nu. Um, so I think I will always think of you primarily as Gruber, which is how <laughs> everyone called you. Uh, did anyone call you Aaron for those few years? No, no. I, I had professors <laughs> that called me Gruber all throughout uh, my entire time at Cal Poly. And it's actually been fun. I've, I have three girls now, two of which are in high school and, and, and play sports. And they've learned that it just seems to be one of those names where they're also referred to as Gruber. And their, their first name seemed to get lost in the, the communication process. It rolls right off the tongue. Yes. Yeah, see, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I think I should probably call you Gruber for the rest of the podcast. I, I may not answer if you call me something else. <laughs> uh, well, having set out on this engineering career path and getting engineering degree, master's degree, working as engineer, how did you come to shift gears and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm going to practice law. So it, it's kind of a funny story. It's like, I don't think that I have had or probably many people have epiphanies in life where they can remember the moment when they made a decision to do something. But I, I, I literally remember sitting in the engineering office uh, where I was designing a building. And what happened was I, I looked up and the principal design engineer was designing a building and the senior design engineer was designing a building and I was the junior engineer designing a building and we were effectively all doing the same thing. And this was <laughs> three years into my engineering career. And I thought, oh my God, I don't think I can do this for another 40 years. I, and I liked engineering, but I didn't want it to be kind of the the end of a uh, upward career path. Um, and, and not that there aren't wonderful opportunities and not that there wasn't, and by, I had by no means mastered engineering. I don't want it to sound like that. But I just thought I was in my, I guess, mid to late 20s. And this was, if there was ever going to be an opportunity, this was the, the time to jump ship. And we had been doing work with some attorneys doing kind of forensic reports and analysis. And I thought, law school sounds interesting. So, so is that really the first your first time when you said maybe I should think about law school? That was this, the first time. It doesn't go back to when you were a kid and you always wanted to be a lawyer and then you got sidetracked. Not not in the slightest. I, I was the person that if you had brought up law school, I would have laughed at you. I think I took uh, one English class in in undergrad and because I had to. Um, I don't think I wrote many papers, and you know it, it was a, a rough introduction when I hit law school. <laughs> but uh, the, you know, kind of the, the engineering mindset I, I find has actually served me fairly well of um, being fairly direct in processing and fairly direct in analysis. And once I learned how to actually put pen to paper and express that, it's, it's all been pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, don't ask me to write prose because I would be awful. <laughs> but I can put together a decent brief, I think. 
I, I do remember, I think, the first time I heard you had gone to law school, I thought, what? What? Gruber in law school? It, it, it's, it even sounds weird. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I, and, you know, I was still single and uh, I could kind of do that type of thing. So I thought it'd be a fun adventure. And if nothing else, I, I look at it as a professional degree and a way to continue learning and, you know, kind of pushing the envelope. Um, I wouldn't say I love law school. Um, however, I met some great people and really learned a lot about, you know, other aspects of, uh, well, just, just learning and being um, and participating in society that I, you don't, really don't get as an engineer. So it was very good for that. Yeah, I think I just figured out a little quicker that architectural engineering was not for me. <laughs> well, as with most things, you're a little ahead on me on that one. <laughs> uh, so you went to work out of law school for Thielen? So, yes, I, I went to work for what was then kind of a old school San Francisco firm that had started in the 30s, I believe. Um, someone may correct me if it was the 20s, but at the 30s as Thielen, Marin, Johnson and Bridges and had been in San Francisco for many, many years. Um, I actually, I summer interned there at Thielen, Marin, Johnson & Bridges. And then when I started as an attorney, it had switched its name to Thielen, Reed & Priest, which then switched its name to Thielen, Brown, Raisman & Steiner, which then switched its name to Thielen. <laughs> so yeah, on some levels, I worked at Thielen. Okay. <laughs> so tell us what happened. Well, you were there for eight years. I was there eight years. Kind of grew up as a lawyer at that firm. What did you do there? I did. I did. I worked in with uh, the construction litigation department, um, primarily litigating large construction disputes. Not a whole lot different than the things I'm doing now. Um, and about seven years in, kind of the typical partner track, uh, the there was grumblings and, and the, we were hearing rumors of things changing and I was pulled aside by a, a very sage partner who said you probably don't want to make partner here and <laughs> that was kind of the first time I had an idea that maybe Thielen was in trouble. Interesting so what happened what ended up happening with that firm? So Thielen had, I mean, there's a variety of different reasons why these things happen, but I think at the end of the day, Thielen had uh, made a push into New York and some other geographic locations and um, just was unable to uh, maintain the partnership that had come over. There wasn't a sense of loyalty and people started to abandon ship and it's a slippery slope at that point. So the uh, the firm was unable, unfortunately, to withstand the volume of partners that left, um, leaving Thielen with you know, leases and other financial obligations that I, I think the management just decided it couldn't survive. Um, it's a shame. It was a phenomenal firm. I would have been gold watch there had I been able to. And uh, I felt like it was taken away from me, but so be it. How how long did that take to play out in your in your sort of experience? I'm sure it was longer in the experience of people that knew, but for me, it was probably about a six to eight month window where everything was kind of you know it was boiling into rumors and innuendo and uncertainties and so forth. And we were I don't want to say we were the 
premier practice, but we were one of the founding practices probably. Um, there was no one there from the 20s anymore. But we were <laughs> one of the primary practices of the firm, and we stayed to the bitter end. Um, mm-hmm. So we rode it all the way into the ground. What was it like navigating the demise of Thielen? It was uh, it was sad. Uh, it's probably the best word. I mean, really, truly sad in that it didn't work out. Because I know everyone there that stayed to the end really wanted it to work out. Um, and, you know, we, we had, we were busy, so we had a landing. Um, so I don't think anyone was really worried about that more than where that landing would be. So I was distracted with work, which is a good thing in bad times. And we were collectively, hopefully going to land somewhere. And for the most part that happened. So as sad as it was, um, it, at the end of the day, we just kind of switched our letterhead and kept on doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I remember getting a call from you sometime in 2008, and you said you were thinking of making the move to Howry, which is where I was. Um, do you remember what I said about it at that point? Did I uh, put the hard sell on you? Well, I, I like the I like the way you phrase it. That I was thinking about making the move. Um, I was <laughs> a senior associate with no uh, substantial book of business, and I had partners that were deciding to make the move. Um, so, you know, let's, let's call a spade a spade. Uh, I didn't have a vote in the process, but I do remember having the conversation and being, feeling much better about it after having talked to you from the standpoint of, you know, the firm itself and how Rain it being a safe landing spot for us. All right. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about Howry. Lawyerly is brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. For information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. And now back to the show. So you joined Howard in 2008, right during the height of the financial crisis. Yes. What was Great that idea. Like? Yeah. Um, I, again, we were busy, so um, it wasn't horrible. I mean, there's all the craziness of the financial crisis going on. Uh, but my practice on some levels lags the economy. And if you know, if you sit down and critically think about it, it makes sense in that the financing of construction uh, and the decisions in construction uh, are around very tight margins. So when money gets tight, uh, the participants in the contract and the process um, can get tight and uh, get a lot more contentious. Mm-hmm. So we were busy with uh, litigation matters. People were worried about the completion of projects and how projects were going to come on to the end of the public um, from the standpoint of leases and use and other things. So I, 
it wasn't that big of a deal because we were busy. I mean, being busy, it's kind of like winning. It cures all, you know, ills. (laughs) At the end of the day, as a lawyer, if you're busy, uh, it's easy to ignore a lot of distractions. So having moved with a group to a new firm and sort of put a new name on the door, um, what was it? Did you experience any any fundamental changes in terms of oh now we're now we're Howery? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say fundamental. I mean, there's always different lifestyle changes, or maybe lifestyle is not the right word. Just culture changes, I think. Um, and it was a little weird for us because it. It feeling in the San Francisco office, I mean, I sat down the hall from the firm managing partner and at Howry, the uh, management was all back east and mm-hmm. we were at a satellite office that uh, appeared to be comprised primarily of lateral hires. There were a couple of different groups, an IP group uh, as well as us that had come in uh, and kind of folded uh, ourselves into the culture of Howry. But on some levels, we're acting in an auto- autonomous manner uh, the same way we acted at the firms we were at before. So I wouldn't say we weren't we were unwelcome. I mean, everyone did what they could to bring us into the culture, but we were also kind of somewhat autonomous sitting up in San Francisco. I imagine if you brought matters over with you and you're busy and new matters coming in, that that probably contributes to that as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and, and the general nature of the, of the office in San Francisco was that people were fairly busy. So there was not a I, people were social, people were friendly, people were great, but it wasn't a lot of downtime to kind of, you know, really digest yourself or become part of the, the culture at Howry. And, and that came a little bit, but uh, unfortunately, our stay wasn't particularly long. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert yeah, yeah. for those who don't know. Uh, you were there essentially only during Howery's two-year spiral into eventually collapsing itself. Uh, yeah, that's a, a, a probably accurate way to put it. You're, yeah. you're, you're bringing up uh, great memories, Sean. <laughs> At what point did you say, uh-oh, um, what have we got ourselves into? Well, uh, again, I was, I mean, I think we were all optimistic. We had just left a firm that we loved that unfortunately wasn't able to survive. And we went into the whole dynamic in an optimistic manner. Um, we were there, I'd, I'd have to do the math. I want to say 27 months, maybe a, a bit over two years. And uh, the first year was... I think fine. I mean, we attended a, a partner retreat down in Florida. It was good to meet a lot of the people there that were, I think the same grumblings you hear at every firm about concern about this or that or compensation, this or that, but there wasn't anything definitive. Um, and then maybe a year in, uh, you started to hear a little more, um, I don't know, grumblings are even the right word, but a little more that maybe things weren't entirely on the up and up and we weren't as healthy as had been sold to us when we came over to Howry. So, and I think at first you don't want to accept that because you just left a failed firm. All right. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say denial is the right term, but we definitely weren't crazy about the fact that we'd taken ourselves, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Did you see the end coming 
Ah, sure. I love to say that I could. Um, no, I didn't see the end coming. I mean, I, I uh, in part because, again, we were busy, um, in part because I think I didn't want it to happen. Um, I didn't see it completely ending until, uh, you know, the writing was so clearly on the wall that above the law would have told me I was ending before I, you know, maybe I admitted it was ending. So sure. it, it was in, it's interesting when I went through the collapse at Thielen, um, collapse is such a negative word. When I went through the shutdown at Thielen, <laughs> um, it was above the law was just starting to, I'm sure they would say they've been around a lot longer, but they were really just starting to get into uh, the day-to-day um, kind of, I wouldn't even call it Twittersphere because that wasn't really a, a thing mm-hmm. then, but kind of the day-to-day news back and forth, the sharing of information by insider associates and, and, the, and the like. But at Howery, I felt that that was definitely more, um, you know, on the internet and discussed, and and there were a lot, was a lot more speculation uh, because at that time you'd had Brobeck that had gone down, Thielen that had gone down, Heller that had gone down, and Howery was kind of the next wave of, uh, of firms that unfortunately were unable to survive. Yeah, Howery certainly got the attention of above the law, and Howery, and then Dewey. Later, yep. you know, when they collapsed, um, I think it was basically above the law that sort of started the the trend of um, figuring out catchy names for uh, using the firm's names, like, how are we going to get out of this or something like that? Yeah. Uh, well, do we, we want to leave? <laughs> we, we were looking for a while to see if there was a licensed attorney, someone in the, in the United States whose last name was Ridiculous, because we thought how ridiculous <laughs> would just... Would be perfect. And I can't take credit for that. Someone else came up with that idea, but apparently no such licensed barred attorney exists in the United no. States. Yeah. Yeah, actually, do you remember the uh, the sort of phenomenon that above the law and its comment threads were at the time? I, I tried to ignore a lot of it, I think, because we've been through it already. Um, and Again, because we, uh, it, it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic in that we, a year into our uh, tenure at Howry, landed uh, what's probably the largest matter that I've worked on in my career, which took me away and out of the office um, on a project in Las Vegas that was ultimately almost a $2 billion dispute um, mm-hmm. on the city center project. So again, we were busy. So I, I did my best not to read above the law, but I do remember it, it being um, much more in the vernacular and much more discussed than when Thielen went under. Yeah, that was a phenomenon, I think, that no longer exists. They, some years back, above the law, decided to do away with their, their comment threads. But at the time, they were uh, a source of a lot of scuttlebutt and and people being named and um, you know, a lot of anonymous kind of trolling of, of firms and people at the firms going on in these public comment boards, essentially. I, I do like that at one point, and, and I don't know if this is above the law or where it was, but there was a comment on some thread somewhere that because my group had ridden Thielen down to the end and as Howery was going into its demise, we were thought of as the angels of death because <laughs> perhaps we were firm killers. Um, it turns out we aren't, um, but uh, I, I did find that one amusing. 
I actually was going to ask you. Uh, so you went to Jones Day for a few years after I Howery, did. right? Yeah. I did. Did they end up giving you the boot so you wouldn't take that firm down as well? No, no. Jones, Jones Day is too big for one person or one group to take down. Uh, that, that's some, no truth to that rumor. No, zero. No. Do you have any favorite Howry memories? Wow. Um, uh, I have a good anecdote from Howry that was, I think, kind of indicative of the somewhat um, odd culture that existed in the San Francisco office. Good intentions, but not always a good follow through. The managing partner of the office. um, So for context wise, when I came over to Howry, I, I did what I thought was a good career move, and I negotiated um, a, um, a promotion to partner. It turns out that that cost me <laughs> quite a bit of money. <laughs> Maybe I should have asked you about that before I did that. But uh, um, anyways, you know, we don't always make wise financial decisions in our lives. Um, but uh, when I was named partner, the um, the uh, the managing partner of the office decided that he would throw a, a lunch, kind of a celebratory lunch, get the people in the office together, anything from team building. Great idea. I mean, he did these things on a regular basis. It was smart to do. The problem was that he called me the morning of and said, hey, I'm sending out an email to let you know that we're having a lunch for you to celebrate making partner. I said, that's great, but I just landed in San Diego where I'm visiting my grandmother, so I'm going to miss it. (laughs) And to his credit, he said, oh, okay, you'll be missed. (laughs) Could have used with a little more pre-planning. Well, you know, you know, the intention was there. And I think that that's kind of on some levels how I sum up Howery is the intention was always there, at least for the vast majority of the attorneys, Uh, you know, good people really trying hard and um, I, a lot of head scratching as to what happened. I mean, I, 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 again, I, I tried not to get too deep into it um, from the standpoint of really what caused the demise. But I know the year that it went down, I billed almost 3000 hours. So mm. it's, um, and, and I'm pretty sure we collected most of it um, and or the <laughs> bankruptcy attorneys did, but uh, it was, it's frustrating. It's definitely frustrating. I wouldn't say it tried the soul, but it was frustrating. And what is the most hours you've ever billed? Uh, th- that that project that we were on in Las Vegas, I billed. Um, I don't. You know, it's funny. You would think that with all of my proclivities to uh, engineering and exactness and preciseness, I'd remember the exact number. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't quite three thousand. But two years in a row, I came pretty close to three thousand. And so one of those two years is about the most that I've ever built, but I, which sounds like an insane amount and, and it is. Um, but it was also a matter where I was flying out every Monday morning and honestly had nothing else to do, was working on one single matter and would fly back Friday night late. So 12 hour, you know, 15 hour days where you're billing 11, 12 or 13 hours sometimes were feasible. And I mean, I don't think those normally are in a practice, but it was that crazy of a matter. So Mm. there you go. That's a lot. Back to back years of that. It was pretty brutal. It it kind of, it helped me to, I think on some levels be too busy to be being mad about the financial hit that Howry was. Sure. (laughs) 
Do you remember what that time during that, you know, when you realized, uh oh, this is happening again? Uh, do you remember what that experience was like? Um, I think there was, uh, and I may have said this before, I think there was a lot of head scratching um, in the San Francisco office in particular because I think we were busy and there was not a huge flow of information, concrete, non-rumor type of information coming from Washington, D.C. or the powers that be as to what was actually going on and, and what the the true troubles were. I mean, it feeling it was easier to understand. It was um, a, a, a merger that had occurred into New York that wasn't successful. It was expensive leases and it was partners who took their business, book of business and walked out the door because they wanted to escape the liability. And at the end of the day, the, the entity that was the firm wasn't able to manage kind of the crushing load that uh, when your equity walks out the door and doesn't come back. But at Howry, um, I, it wasn't ever really explained kind of how the mismanagement occurred um, because I didn't feel like the same exodus was occurring, at least until the very end. I think people did try and stick it out, but, and this is, there's, I have no factual basis other than the fact that I couldn't see it coming or didn't see it coming of what the probably, I assume was gross mismanagement that occurred that resulted in the failure. So what's a career highlight for you post-Howry? Uh, career highlight post-Howry really has to be finally deciding to leave the big firm world, the big firmosphere, if you want to call it that, and, uh, and starting my own, um, my own firm with uh, a, a, a great partner, John Rawls, and another Sam Neese, who was kind of in semi-retirement now, who actually had left Howry. They were both at Howry and they had left and, and started kind of a two-person shop. And um, when I joined, we've, we've, we've grown it considerably. Um, and that's been probably the highlight. I've, I've really enjoyed doing that with, 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 uh, with two great partners. What was that decision like for you? Was it sort of stepping off the edge of a building into, a, into the unknown? It was... Um, you know, it's funny. I don't think it was hard as it probably should have been. I think that if you sit down and analyze these things, you kind of have get paralysis by analysis. And I, on some levels, uh, I had come off the large project at um, at uh, Jones Day. When we moved over to Jones Day, we'd worked the the matter in, in uh, the city center matter in Nevada for several a uh, couple more years. And then it was kind of finding a fit at Jones Day and, uh, you know, realizing the size of the firm and, and looking at uh, kind of what the options were as far as being a, uh, a partner there and what the future was. And it meant a lot of travel. It meant a lot of things that I had, had done already and wasn't necessarily more excited about doing again. I mean, look, they, they get great matters. It's a very successful firm and they do big, crazy things and very sophisticated um, matters. But at that time I had three girls. Uh, I think the oldest was 11 and I wanted to spend more time with them. Mm-hmm. So I just decided, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, it, it's interesting from the standpoint of, you know, the kind of the overview of your, your podcast and what it's like to practice as a lawyer and be a lawyer. 
Uh, a friend of mine said to me and when I was going through this process, because I don't want you to think I just woke up one morning and decided it, it was a long process. Uh, there was a lot of analysis, but mm-hmm. a friend of mine said to me, at the, look, at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're in this group of people that uh, have successfully figured out how to be members of teams that solve other people's big problems. Other people are always going to have big problems. And people that are good at solving those problems will always be able to find a job at big law firms. And I don't know how if that's completely uniform and completely true, but it is a subset of people that are willing to do that and have that type of life. And I always, I kind of view that as a potential safety net. And so if it didn't work out to go to the smaller firm, um, then, you know, hopefully it would always work out to go back. And, you know, same thing I would, you know, tell my children, you you don't burn bridges, you don't write nasty emails, you (laughs) maintain good friends, and, um, you know, you go off into uh, the next adventure. Um, and, And... Oddly enough, I think having been at Thielen and having been at Howry, um, I had a lot of uh, former colleagues that had scattered to the wind as well. So uh, it's been an opportunity to connect with a lot of people that uh, the conflicts that existed at Jones Day, you know, didn't enable us to do. Sure. Yeah, I think that's something that I've heard from a lot of people. The fact that everybody got forced to be spread so far and wide in a shorter amount of time ended up sort of seeding people in a lot of places that who knows they might never have ended up. Yeah. I mean, I, I view it as the, the Thielen and Howie diaspora. Um, we're, we're all out there kind of wandering still. Um, and we found <laughs> homes and we're happy and we're doing yep. things, but it means, you know, a lot of different people at a lot of different places. Whereas I feel if, Sometimes if you're at a big firm, it's easy to just get so subsumed with that culture that you don't um, have the ability to kind of look outside and see other things and see what other cool other people are doing and what other options there are in the world. We'll call it the silver lining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's end up with some sort of rapid fire questions for you. What's your favorite thing to do to unwind? Um, oh, geez. Uh, in a non-smoke-filled, non-COVID world. Uh, I enjoy playing <laughs> tennis a lot, uh, which uh, apparently is one of the safer sports to continue to play. So I've, I've tried to keep that up. Um, and uh, I try and read, although, you know, having my face in a computer screen all day sometimes makes reading uh, a little difficult. But uh, if I find a good enough book, I'll still tear through it, which is fun to do. That and having that- my children harass me. Which is- <laughs> No, you're not. You're not going and figuring out math problems or some engineering uh, thing. <laughs> well, sad, okay, I, I, I was, um, I was trying to avoid revealing how much of a true dork that I still am. <laughs> but um, my eldest daughter is taking calculus this year, and I hadn't uh, done a derivative or an integral in almost thirty years. So I actually picked up a book on calculus to see if I could actually um, help her or at least understand what she's talking about. So she can't surpass me at least until she gets to college. And have you figured it out? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, do you have a favorite lawyer joke? Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit involved, and I'll, I'll do my best on a good delivery. But with that caveat, um, there's a rumor out that they are – 
replacing lab rats with lawyers. They've given really? three reasons. The three reasons are the first of all, there's more lawyers. Second of all, the lab assistants don't get as attached to the lawyers. <laughs> and third of all, there's just some things that rats won't do. <laughs> oh, I like that one. That combines like three good tropes all about lawyers. Absolutely. That, that's good. That's what the best jokes do. <laughs> Uh, all right, I'll tell you one. Shoot. What do you throw to a drowning lawyer? Nothing. His partners. No. <laughs> well played. Uh, what's your position on lawyer shows? Um, I don't watch much TV, um, so I, I don't know. I, I'd almost have to say I, I can't comment other than, I mean, I was always a Law & Order fan, but it's kind of escapism. I, I don't, I, I'm not the type of person that sits and criticizes lawyer shows. I mean, they're shows. So entertainment's entertainment, but I, I couldn't say I have a favorite or anything like that. I, di I didn't watch Law and Order and dream of being a lawyer. Too busy playing tennis and doing calculus. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you play any musical instruments? Uh, I don't. I, I, I'm happy playing the radio. That's about it. What instrument would you play if you had to learn one? Well, it's funny. I have, um, I'm, I'm sitting in my home office at the moment, which is, uh, I like to call my living room because that's what it actually really <laughs> is. And uh, I'm sitting right next to uh, a baby grand piano that I inherited from my father. Um, that unfortunately, because my parents got divorced and my father took the piano and my mother got me, I never learned to play. So mm -hmm. my children, um, to a varying degree, are playing now, and I would love to learn to play it someday. But uh, I fear it, uh, it, in my age, it may be difficult to pick up someday. That's cool. Uh, what's one thing you've learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? Oh, wow. Um, that, at the end of the day, uh, really what makes me happy um, is the ability to spend more time with my family, which the, you know, having the smaller firm has allowed me to do, uh, and the ability to kind of maintain the contact with, with clients, um, and, and help them through what is a lot of uncertainty. I mean, one of the things about COVID that is, a, 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 has, has occurred within the construction industry is there's a lot of uncertainty about what the delays to project and work and, the health of workers and, and there's a whole host of questions that have come up and it's, I, I kind of helped me remember that at the end of the day, what I like so much about being a lawyer is that it's similar to being an engineer. You get to solve really crazy, complicated problems mm -hmm. and you get to help someone that for whatever reason, um, you know, needed someone else's uh, advice in helping them solve their problems and the connection of, at the end of the day, whether, you know, you want to call yourself the prevailing party or not, or get into these type of dynamics, you're really sitting down and helping someone work through a problem so they can continue to be successful in doing what they've chosen to do. And that's what I like about being a lawyer. So COVID's, I think, kind of brought that out a little bit more. It's made it more poignant. It's a good thing. That's great. Well, Gruber, it's been a lot of fun having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate the call. Take care of yourself. That is all the time we have. 
Thanks to my friend Aaron Gruber for joining us today. And thanks as well to our presenting sponsor, Array. Learn more about Array at trustarray.com. Join us again next time as we continue the How Are You Doing Now series here on the Lordly Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Lordly and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Thank you.